You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I am very sensitive to the stress that cities are under. And I recognize that not everybody has this level of sensitivity. In fact, I <laughs> I experience a lot because I, I will go to a place and I see a lot of things that other people aren't seeing because I'm I'm sensitive to it, right? I think we all have our sensitivities. One thing that I have experienced is that, you know, a, a lot of people are very sensitive to things that I am blind to, or if not blind to, at least it's not high on my degree of, of sensitivity. I care about, but it's not something I get up every day and, and experience. It's not something that kind of burns into my brain, burns into my heart, you know, makes me cringe when I run into it. There are things that I am very sensitive to, however. And I've come to appreciate that we're all sensitive to different things. The idea of a strode, for example, is something that I am sensitive to and have been sensitive to for a long time, this just incoherence of a transportation investment. But, you know, it's obvious to me or it's evident to me that a lot of people were not very sensitive to this. It took, it took us naming it. It took us giving it a name for this conundrum of the street trying to be a road and the road trying to be a street. We're trying to move cars quickly, but we're also trying to create economic development. It took us giving it a word for people to grow more sensitive to it. I like to go to Disney World and I try to explain this to people and they they often don't grasp it. They're like, oh, you know, it's it's silly. It's a, it's a little fetish you have. And I understand that reaction. I tried to explain it to people years ago. And this was before I, I mean, this was when I only traveled domestically. I, I had was too young to, I hadn't traveled overseas. I didn't actually get to travel overseas till I was in my, my late 20s. Before that, it was, you know, North American cities, largely Minnesota cities. And as an engineer and as a planner who went through a planning program that had no urban design to it. I didn't really understand. I didn't really know and recognize why when I went to say a Disney theme park, I felt very comfortable. All the kind of fingernails on the the chalkboard kind of effect that I had of just being in the regular world, like went away. Why, Why wasn't that there? Why could I be in a place that was chaotic, noisy, crowded, and it felt very comfortable to me? I felt like no one was assaulting my senses. And it was because I was very sensitive to the urban design of the place. I didn't recognize that that was what I was very sensitive to. But once I went to Europe and had that, again, that experience of like no fingernails on the chalkboard, I just realized fingernails on the chalkboard might be becoming a very dated reference. (laughs) I don't have a better one. I don't know what the young people these days would would call that. For those of you, you know, younger than, I don't know what, when the last people to experience a chalkboard was, but essentially 
you can make this horrifying sound by scratching your fingernails across an old blackboard, an old chalkboard. It would make this hideous sound. And in fact, the chalk sometimes would make this hideous sound and it would just make, oh, it was this painful. That is the pain that I experience in most places, in a lot of places. It's better now today. I found ways, you know, now that I can identify what it is that drives me nuts, I can identify what it is. I, in a sense, have been able to countermand that sensitivity. But I remember being much younger and having that sensitivity to a place, just being like, this this place is driving me crazy and not really recognizing what it was. When I went to Disney World and, you know, all, all of those things were gone, all those things were suppressed, all of the... You know, the buildings <laughs> have symmetry. They front the street in a nice way. There's good spacing of, of the space. It's just a whole bunch, like a tiny, you know, little things added up to the space that, you know, I can be in absolute chaos and is very, very comfortable. It's hard to explain to my wife, who is one of these people who likes solitude and gets driven crazy by being in large crowds. I'm like, this is, I don't, the large crowds don't bother me. This space is just delightful. We're all sensitive to different things, right? We all have different levels of sensitivity. I want you today to push yourself to become a little bit more sensitive to the things around you because I think you perceive it. I think you see it, but oftentimes we struggle to give it a name, right? Oftentimes we struggle to give it voice. If you look around you, you will see that things are falling apart. I know a lot of people don't like to think about that. A lot of people, you know, at Strong Towns, we, we talk about this and talk about the reasons and the ramifications. We will get people who will come back to us and say, oh no, things have never been better. Things are going great. The economy's up, unemployment's down, everything's moving ahead. My city's making all kinds of investments. Everything's great. Even in my hometown here, people are like, hey, the sun is shining. Everything's wonderful. Everything's looking great. I walk through the park and I see just signs of decay everywhere. I, I walk the street, I see signs of decay everywhere. I see things falling apart and I see nobody really being all that sensitive to it, all that worried about it. If you look around, you can see things falling apart. And there are things that we depend on. I think I, we depend on the park. I go to my house and I'm like, this park is an amenity for my neighborhood. If this park continues to decline the way it has declined over the last 20, 30, 40 years, this will have a really adverse impact on my neighborhood. But even beyond that, you know, the street out in front of my house, um, the streets in my neighborhood, the streets in my city, we may, you know, have a, a, a street plan. We're going to go and renovate things. We're going to borrow some money. We're going to make this happen. Um, the reality is, is that our streets are in worse shape today than they were 20 years ago. Our budget is in worse shape today than it was 20 years ago. We have more debt, more long-term debt than we did 20 years ago. When we look at things like our, you know, how we deliver our water, how we uh, collect our sewage, how we deal with our stormwater, these are all massively expensive systems that are often we are blind to, right? They're underground. We don't think about them. But when I have scratched the surface here in my hometown, when I have interacted really with anyone from any city in North America, 
I get the same story over and over again. We're raising rates. Rates are going up. Uh, services and maintenance are going down. We just don't have the money to maintain all this stuff. We are switching to patching mode where we run around and try to patch problems as opposed to solving problems. We are looking for creative ways to tax people, to assess people, to fill out federal grants and state grant requests and other things to get money to patch this thing together and keep it working. A lot of this feels like normal, right? It feels like the normal way of doing business. We can see that a lot of these systems that we depend on, the ones that we're not maintaining, the ones that we can see being stretched, right? We see them being expanded all the time. I mentioned the park in my hometown. I have been on, a, <laughs> I was going to say multi-decade. It's been a long time pushing to get things maintained better, pushing to get small attention to details, right? Pushing to get little things done. My city has, in a sense, dedicated themselves now to maintaining the parks and to making strategic investments in the park. And instead of that meaning having more people out there doing maintenance, it has meant doing large projects, large projects that we can get grant amounts for. At the same time, we just built a brand new park, not a modest little park either, a brand new huge park. And we did it to a lot of fanfare while people are, you know, I, I, oh, I really like this. It's great. It's a trailside. It's a riverside park. It takes care of all, all this space that was kind of abandoned and left over. It's done something great with it. I think we could debate that. I do get the fingernails on the chalkboard when I'm there, even though it's probably the best urban design place uh, we have done in my city. You know, it still is like a latrine with an attached park. I, oh, the missed opportunity. But we built this to the tune of many, many millions of dollars. We spent lots of committee times and effort and grant writing and, in a sense, capacity and resources building a brand new park. When we can go around the city and see park after park after park after park in a state of decline and neglect, when we can look back at the old photos of what the park used to look like and see a place that was loved, a place that was magnificent, a place that was a showcase for the community and the neighborhood, and we see a place today where we struggle to maintain the weeds, right? If you look around, you can see it. If you actually look for it, you can see it. We hear all the narratives, right? We hear all the excuses. We're told continuously why we need to keep doing the things that clearly aren't working. And in a lot of ways, this is because people are stuck, right? The, the narrative of why things are the way they are, why things are falling apart, why our taxes are going up, our debts are going up, and our services are going down, these things are given to us, and there's a, a narrative that surrounds them that we find in many ways comforting, if not comfortable, right? So if you are on the political left, it's been a very easy argument to make for a long time that, well, you know, conservative-minded people are anti-government. This is what you get when you're anti-government. Conservative-minded people politically want to spend less money. This is what you get when you spend less money. 
there's a narrative there about frugality and cutting back and austerity and what have you that ties in with the things around us going bad. And that is a narrative that for a certain group of people is, if, if not a happy narrative, it's a frustrating narrative, it, it is a narrative that they are at least comfortable with. It provides an answer where people don't have to dig any deeper. If you're politically conservative, there are answers for all these problems too, right? Uh, stuff is falling apart. Well, yeah, this is what happens when you have bloated government. Things aren't working. Well, yeah, this is what you happen when you have unaccountable bureaucracy. This is what happened when you raise taxes in an environment where you just have tax and spend people who don't really care and don't know how to run things, don't have any business acumen or business sense. It's astounding to me how often these national political tropes are repeated over and over and over and then applied to your local city where literally none of them apply. It's also astounding to me how many people run for council because they care about their city and they want things to be better locally. And then when they get into government, they get roped into, again, these national political narratives that have nothing really to do with how our cities are run. If you look around you, you will see, and this is true in all but the fastest growing cities, and I can talk about the fastest growing cities in a second, but let's, let's set that aside. In every other place, you see the same thing, right? We see taxes going up. We see services going down. We see tension over that rising. I was recently in a city that has had big transit cuts. And, you know, the narrative around the transit cuts is that, you know, this is, this is a horrible thing that we're doing to the poor. This is a horrible thing we're doing to the disadvantaged. This is a horrible thing we're doing to our community. But what else do we do? And, you know, I hear that. I hear that kind of statement of sensitivity. This is a bad thing to do for vulnerable people. But I also hear the idea that someone else should be fixing this. This isn't, this isn't ours to address. This isn't for us to fix and figure out. In these places where we experience this kind of slow rolling decline, while taxes go up and debt goes up, there's an underlying tension that we know this can't continue. We knew a decade ago, we knew 15 years ago that this couldn't continue, yet it continues. This has created this situation where a lot of people have said to me, well, Chuck, you know, you, you've, been, you've been saying this stuff for over a decade now. You've been here saying that cities are insolvent, they're going bankrupt, this doesn't work, and you've been saying this for a long time. Where are the bankrupt cities? And my answer is like, look around. Look around. The tree falls down in front of my house and nobody fixes it. Nobody puts in a new one. I go out and put in a new one, I get in trouble for it. The sidewalk falls apart, who fixes it? The street gets plowed most days, but we've even started to cut back on that. But the sidewalk is someone else's responsibility. The neighborhood struggles because we don't have affordable housing, yet we're not building any new homes. We struggle in the neighborhood because there's no jobs, that you can't open a business. 
we celebrate the Costco coming in. We celebrate the Walgreens coming in. We celebrate someone from the outside coming in and showing us some love because somehow that validates who we are. Yet when we do the math, we lose money on each of these transactions. And we're outwardly hostile to the local person who would like to do something, you know, at a local person's scale, right? Much smaller, but in the same neighborhood. A lot of times that is categorized as a NIMBY reaction. And I think I see it for what it really is, right? What it really is, is a response to this decline. When you look around you and you see what's happening, when you feel it, when you, even when you're just modestly sensitive to it, it is easy for people to correlate change with decline. And a lot of us would like to see neighborhoods change. We'd like to see them change for the better. We think that that change has to include new housing and corner stores and new investments and, and you know, new residents, new neighbors, new people living in a place. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to reckon with ourselves that anyone living in an American city today that has experienced change has experienced decline. They've experienced negative reactions from that. This is the story of North American cities today. Let's talk about the fast-growing places for a second because these are the ones that, to me, are the most... Um, I was going to say frustrating, but frustrating is really not the word. They're, they're the ones that I, I don't know quite what to do with. Because oftentimes they are held up by the struggling places as the model. And if you go to the fast-growing places, they will hold themselves up as a model. They will believe wholly implausibly that they've somehow cracked the code. And they will be different from you know, the suburb that came a generation ahead of them from the place that came a few decades before that, that did something similar and wound up in a bad place. They are smarter. They have it more together. They've got it more figured out. Um, they're not going to end up where the other ones were. Yet we see the same exact pattern repeated over and over. All that new growth, all of that horizontal expansion brings with it jobs, brings with it, you know, increased taxes, increased fees, utility connections, all the good stuff that makes government whole and flush and run. Yet these places, the government is not whole and flush and, and running well, right? Often these places are screaming. We don't have enough money. We can't keep up. We've got too much demand for stuff. We got to get out and build. We got we to gotta borrow money. We've got to take on debt in order to keep up. It always seems like we're behind. It always seems like we're a project behind or two projects behind. How do we keep up? How do we keep up? And, you know, as with any Ponzi scheme, this is how it feels. The unraveling of this is where the pain is. But that doesn't mean that that's, you know, that's the only place where there's tension. There's tension throughout the entire thing. And oftentimes when we experience that sensational boom, that big run up, that big uh, kind of explosion of demand that in some ways makes the metrics we're tracking look really good. We struggle to recognize the echo that is coming, the echo of the decline that will come later. Like all pyramid schemes, this stuff is obvious after it unravels, right? After it falls apart. If you look at just the bankruptcy of Detroit, which is kind of the highest profile municipal bankruptcy, I was going to say it's too bad. I think it's, you know, I'm not wishing this on anyone, but 
you know, had Detroit been able to stave things off for just a few years and hit COVID, they probably would not have declared bankruptcy because they got a, would have got a big infusion of cash and they would have been able to stave things off for a little while. If we look at Detroit and you go back and you listen to the narratives over many, many decades, what you hear is the rationalization of decline and the normalizing of decline and the idea that at some point things will turn around and start to get better. And they don't. Because structurally, Detroit is a city with too much stuff and not enough there there. Not enough there there. This is the story of every American city. Every American city has modeled themselves to one degree or another on the development pattern pioneered by Detroit. Detroit, the auto city, the first city to experiment with the auto-oriented development pattern, the first city to expand horizontally in an aggressive manner, the, to have auto commuter suburbs, to spread everything out, to denude their tax base, to build highways and parking ramps and parking surface lots and everything else in the core of their city, and to spread things out dramatically, driving down their tax base and driving up their costs. This is the model that we've all followed. I was chatting with someone the other day who was talking about Texas. They were from Texas. And they were talking about how, you know, California is a mess. I mean, this is what Texans like to believe anyway. California is a mess, which, listen, I concur, right? California is a mess, but it's a mess uniquely different from what's going on in Texas. Texas is a success. California is a mess. And there's a lack of recognition in that statement of just how closely these two places are related. The fact that California in the 1950s got building really decades before Texas did. In California, you don't need air conditioning to build a house. You don't need air conditioning to drive a car. In Texas, if you don't have those things, it's a pretty miserable life. And so in places like Phoenix, in places like Las Vegas, in places like Texas, what you have is, in a sense, a delay on the development pattern of California. California copies the development pattern of Detroit. California does this aggressively. California has a huge boom. California is a Republican state full of business-minded, you know, Rotary Club uh, conservatives out there, you know, grow, grow, grow the economy. Uh, California elects Ronald Reagan, approves Prop 13. I'm not saying California hasn't always had a tinge of progressivism, but I got to tell you, so does Texas. California copied Detroit. Texas has copied California. And if you are from Texas and you don't see that, you don't recognize that, you actually need to go and spend time in California and be less sensitive to, in a sense, the national narrative that's imposed on California from places like Texas, but actually be there and experience what California is like. California cities are crumbling. I mean, even the most uh, successful ones, and I'll you know do successful in air quotes, are crumbling. They're falling apart. It's not working. 
But if you go to Texas, you see the exact same thing. You see the exact same thing being repeated just on a 25 to 30 year delay. As part of Strong Towns, I have been blessed. And I use that word with intention. I, I have been blessed. I have been so fortunate to be invited to share Strong Towns ideas and concepts in every state in the US. We were down to just two a year ago. I had never been to Hawaii. I had never been to Alaska. Last September, so September of 2022, I was invited to speak in Hawaii. And I took that opportunity and it was amazing. I learned a ton. I developed a lot of friendships. I found the place to be, you know, I, I, being from Minnesota, any place warm is magical, but I found it to be uh, unique and magical in ways that I had not expected. I did a whole podcast on it. Go back and listen to it. It was a fantastic trip. And I think what blew me away kind of more than anything was just how hungry people in Hawaii were for the Strong Towns message and how applicable it was to their life. That left Alaska. And last week, I was able to visit Alaska. I was invited to speak in Anchorage at a conference, and I went up and I, I was able to do that. I was able to spend some time on the ground with people, walking some neighborhoods. I was able to speak at a conference and interact with people there. And then I was able to go explore a little bit on my own uh, prior to a, a member meetup where I got to talk to a, a lot of Strong Towns people that are trying to do great things in Anchorage, in Alaska. It's astounding to me because I've been to all these states now and I've seen bits of all of them. And as I started out this whole podcast with, I'm very sensitive to the outward signs of decline. As subtle as they may be to some people, I'm very sensitive to them. And in each of these cases, whether it was uh, you know, Hawaii, which is so gorgeous and so beautiful and so desirable in many ways, but yet had all of these kind of outward signs of the growth Ponzi scheme just weighing it down. I, I described at the time, you know, imposing the North American development pattern on a piece of volcanic rock in the middle of the ocean is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. But it had the same overall effect, right? It's beautiful when it's brand new. When it's brand new, it works theoretically. Over time, as the sheen kind of wears off, it does not wear well. It does not work well. The system becomes too burdensome to sustain itself and you get decline even in a place like Hawaii. In Alaska, you have a massive boom. If California copied Detroit and Texas copied California, Alaska is essentially behind everybody in terms of time scale, right? Because in Alaska, not only did you need, you didn't need air conditioning, obviously, you needed good heating, but you needed like good construction techniques and you needed ways to get supplies and, and all this stuff there efficiently. But you also needed the oil boom. You, you needed the pipeline. You needed the dividend. You needed other things to make Alaska viable. And those things happened in a sense all at once, right? They hadn't happened for decades. Alaska had kind of eked by, been very kind of modest place. And then all of a sudden you had this huge boom that took place because you got the pipeline, you got the dividend, you had a, a huge amount of economic growth. 
Alaska is now losing population. Anchorage is losing population. And the difficult thing about that situation is that, you know, when you're growing, you can cover up a lot of your mistakes with just more growth, right? You can overcome. This is the early part of the pyramid scheme. As you grow and grow and grow, you have all this free cash flow and you can actually kind of cover up and or ignore the problems that you're facing. But when things start to slow down, the decline that starts to build up over time, the decline that starts to set in, starts to accelerate. And without the expanding resources, there's really no way to deal with it, or there's very few, very limited ways to deal with it in the current paradigm. I thought Anchorage, I was in the state of Alaska, but I did not get to see a whole lot of Alaska. I was on the ground for like 25 hours. I'm going back in February and hope to see a lot more then. But, you know, it was a short trip. Even in this short period of time, I was astounded by the natural beauty. I was depressed by many of the neighborhoods. I heard a lot of stories of resources wasted, money wasted, time wasted, lifetimes wasted, building stuff that cannot and will not endure. We can all see this in our communities. A development approach that burns up resources a development approach that burns up neighborhood capacity, a development approach that creates for us the illusion of wealth, creates for us cash today, free cash flow today in exchange for enormous long-term liabilities. And suddenly, in each of these modes, we are in the long term. In each of these styles and approaches, we now live in the long term. If you look around, you can see it everywhere. You can see it everywhere. I want to tell you about something else that I see everywhere. I'm seeing in more and more places. And that is the Strong Towns movement. I am gratified it doesn't do it justice. Um, I mean, look, I remember when this was a very kind of crazy, lonely operation. I remember writing those early blog posts doing those very early podcasts. And to say voice in the wilderness would be, you know, understating how isolating and lonely was. I actually thought I might be crazy. I might be actually nuts. Like I'm, this might be like a coping mechanism for me. And what I really need is like to go speak to a psychiatrist somewhere because I'm, I'm seeing things. I'm sensitive to things. I am perceiving things that the people around me are not. My wife is not. My family is not. My professional contacts and colleagues are not. Those early writings, those early podcasts, those early connections with people showed me and taught me that I wasn't crazy. And that once people started to speak it, once people started to point it out, once people started to recognize the decline that was around them, it became a powerful bit of awareness. Once we started giving voice to what the word Strode meant, right, and what it was, people started to see Strodes everywhere. They would contact me and they would say, uh, Chuck, you've driven me mad. I used to not see this and now I can't unsee it. It's everywhere in front of me. And trust me, people are not being paranoid. Like, oh, I see a strode behind, <laughs> I see a strode behind every bush. No, you see strodes everywhere because strodes are everywhere. 
we just had grown so used to it that people were not seeing it. When we start giving voice to this decline, we start pushing back on the narrative that somehow this is normal, somehow this is the way things are done. Somehow, if we just continue on this path and we apply for the right grant or the right loan, we uh, do the right project, we can get the right developer or the right mix of businesses to come in, we can hire the right city administrator or elect the right president, or whatever your narrative is about how this turns itself around, if we can just do that thing or those combinations of things, this decline that we have grown used to, this decline that we have explained away, will start to reverse itself. And it's just not true. And by giving voice to the fact that it's not true is really, really powerful. We can actually start to do something about it. The financing of our cities is a huge Ponzi scheme. At the end of World War II, we recognized that uh, our country was poised to go right back into the Great Depression. That as the war wound down and as we demobilized millions of troops, as we shut down all these industries of war, that there was nothing propping our economy up. There was nothing really different about us in 1945 as there were in 1935. And when we did demobilize, the most likely scenario was that our economy would just go right back into the depths of the Great Depression. Instead, we experienced the greatest boom, the greatest economic boom that any society has ever experienced. We built infrastructure. We built highways. We built roads. We built drainage systems. We extended sewer and water systems out. All this stuff became a platform for building the suburbs, the next kind of iteration out of the city. And while cities have always grown out, growing out incrementally, what we did was something fundamentally different. We said, in our affluence, in our power, in our greatness, we can go out and build things permanently. We can go out and build them all at once, and we can build them to a finished state. And we can anticipate how they will age and how they will grow and, and, and how they will change over time so that we can plan all this in so that we can build, and, and this is a direct quote from a speech that one of the founders of the ULI said back in the 1950s, we're going to build a permanent prosperity. That was what this generation was doing. That's what they believed was possible. It's very idealistic. In many ways, it feels very progressive, right? Coming out of the 1930s, kind of the idealism of the New Deal. The person I quoted from the ULI was J.C. Nichols. He's actually a property developer. And so there was a certain amount of progressive idealism. There was a certain amount also of kind of business, or if we look at conservatives in the sense that they champion markets and businesses or have historically in this country, the idea is that um, you know, there's a role for that in this system too. We can build a great permanent prosperity in America by unleashing developers, unleashing capital, unleashing these kind of new ways of doing government. And we can bring these all together through zoning, through regulations, through grants, through public investments, through private markets, through the housing mortgage system, through the capital markets that we had created and expanded. We could do all these things and experience this permanent, permanent prosperity. I get why particularly for a generation that lived through the Great Depression and World War II, this was a very kind of seductive calling, right? Particularly when it worked. 
particularly when those generations after World War II were so prosperous and so successful for so many people. Note, not for everybody, and for many people who were excluded from this, it has actually been a system that has been oppressive. But for a lot of Americans, and I, I think it's fair to say the majority of Americans, and particularly for uh, kind of a supermajority of those who are A, in positions of power and decision-making, uh, B, the offspring of those people, uh, C, the friends and the neighbors and the very close people who are to those people. For all of them, the people who create the narrative of the country, the dominant narratives of the country, this is our most successful moment. This was our shining, shining moment. I I've said many times, if you go back to the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, from a strong town standpoint, what you heard was two 70-year-old candidates describing the greatest decades of their life and how they were going to create that again for us. Whether that was a vision of Aussie and Harriet families and blue-collar jobs, or whether that was a vision of an expansive federal government, one that could be the difference maker, do great things, make uh, important investments that would grow prosperity broadly, both of those candidates were talking about the same exact period of time, the couple of decades after World War II, when all of this stuff seemed possible. That's not where we live today, right? We don't live in that period of time. Because instead of creating a permanent prosperity, what this created was a lot of growth, a lot of GDP growth, and a lot of uh, wealth for a lot of individuals. But for communities, for cities, for local governments, this created some of that. It created transactions, it created permit fees, it created utility fees, it created increased property taxes, but it also created enormous liabilities liabilities that cities had not had to deal with before in this way. I had someone ask me, we were, we were talking about populations and, you know, think to yourself, what is the population of the city of Anchorage? In my mind, like 70,000, 80,000, it's almost 300,000. It's a huge population. It's also a very expansive city. But as I'm having this conversation with someone who asked me about the population of Anchorage, they then asked me, well, what's the population of Brainerd? the city where I live. And I says, 14,000. And he says, is that, is that up? Is that grown? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? And I said, it's the same it was at the end of World War II. My city, the city I live in at the end of World War II is 14,000, roughly like 13,500 people. Today, it is roughly 13,500 people. It's the same. But we're 10 times the area. That Growth that we got, the increase in permit fees and increase in utility fees and utility connections and increase in property tax, all of that came with a massive, massive, massive increase in liabilities. Now we have 10 times the road to maintain, the same number of people. Now we have 10 times plus the pipe to maintain, same number of people. Now we have 10 times the area to snowplow, 10 times yeah, the area, same amount of people. Now we have more place to provide fire protection and police protection. We have more parks. We have more amenities that we've built. We have more medians to maintain and ditches to mow and curb to take care of and water to drain. We have all of this stuff. We have the same number of people. Same number of people. 
Oh, but Chuck, we're so much richer today. Really? Are we? The typical Brainerd resident, much like the typical American resident, has a negative net worth. That was not true at the end of World War II. The generation that lived through the Great Depression and lived through uh, World War II did not emerge from that with negative net worths. Now, they might have had meager savings. They might have had a lower, quote-unquote, standard of living, right? They might have lived in smaller houses, had fewer cars, had fewer TVs, had fewer computers, had less stuff. But they were way wealthier than we are. Even if you look at household income, household incomes are up a tiny fraction of what our overall liabilities are. We did a study in Lafayette, Louisiana, and we saw their liabilities had grown since the end of World War II by 10 times and 20 times. And in some instances, you know, they have 10 times the amount of pipe per person that they had. Um, they had 20 plus times the amount of uh, firefighting infrastructure today than they had at the end of World War II. What is their household income up? Not 10 times, not 20 times, not even two times. The household income is only up 1.6, 60%. 60% as opposed to 10,000% on the liability side. What this post-war development pattern has done is that it has bankrupted our cities. We are able to experience rapid amounts of growth. We are able to experience, and this is why every time there is a recession, every time there's a slowdown, every time there's any economic tension, the first thing that economists tell us to do, go out and build infrastructure. Go out and build, 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 build infrastructure because infrastructure creates growth. And guess what? If you measure it in terms of macroeconomics, it does create growth. They're right. But if you measure it in terms of city balance sheets, in terms of city wealth, it doesn't do anything of the sort. It creates a little bit of cash today in terms of transactions, but it creates enormous, enormous liabilities for the future. And guess what? We now live in the future. We live in the future of all of these decisions. And so when you look around you and you see the park not being maintained, when you look around you and you see the sidewalk not being maintained, when you look around you and you see the road falling apart, when you see things that aren't as nice as they used to be, when you see that the new city hall building is like a sheetrock palace as opposed to the brick gorgeous building that was built in the 1930s that you tore down. When you see that the new school that went in is like a strip mall instead of the grand thing that was built that you inherited. When you go look at the park and the park is because you're mowing it with a big mower, you can't get the weeds underneath the benches. And you look back at the pictures of the old park and it was full of flower beds that were like highly maintained. We used to pay people to maintain the flower beds. We don't have that capacity anymore. We will put it into a big lawnmower that you can go out and, you know, mow the park in four hours instead of six, but you do a junky job doing it. We have more stuff. We have no capacity to maintain it. And we do not have a development pattern. Let me put it this way. We have a development pattern that is finely tuned to create growth when given certain inputs from the top down. But the development pattern is incapable of creating wealth and prosperity for communities. The only way we're going to do that, the only way we're going to create wealth and prosperity for communities is from the bottom up. I like to explain to people because I, I think 
like I said earlier, there's there's this left-right narrative and, and you can get in the bubble of the progressive narrative. You can get in the bubble of the conservative narrative. And it's just so comforting because everything falls into place and it feels so good. But if you step out of those and you actually kind of question some of the things that are going on, you you find out very quickly that what we really have, what we're really struggling with is a top-down narrative, kind of a consensual top-down narrative versus a bottom-up reality, a bottom-up realization. And I think it's important to recognize what the top-down narrative delivers, right? The top-down narrative delivers simplistic responses to kind of mechanistic problems. I was, I'm going to use the word attacked. I don't think attacked is quite the right word because it wasn't violent. I was once again attempted to be shamed over something I wrote about Flint, Michigan. I wrote in Flint, Michigan, that I thought it was the wrong thing to do to go and replace their water system exactly how it had been built for them. Now, understand, and I said this many times in many different ways, every time I talk about Flint, I think it would be wrong to go and replace the water system in my city too, the way it was given to us, right? I I don't think it works. But Flint, Michigan has the kind of imminent problem. I said the same thing about Jackson, Mississippi, which has an, the imminent problem that they're dealing with, the, the water system falling apart. And I, I said the more, the more decent thing to do, the more moral thing to do would be to actually scale a system to their community, one that they could sustain, one that they could build off of, one that wasn't a financial millstone around their neck. And the idea was, well, Chuck, you know, you obviously don't care you obviously are happy to have the people of Flint have a lesser system than the one you have. I think that mindset comes from this top-down mechanistic view of cities. The idea that a city is simple inputs and outputs, right? We go in and we build roads. We go in and we build sewer systems. We go in and we build water systems. We deliver these things, and a compassionate society delivers them to where people need it. A bottom-up view of this, a a bottom-up conversation around this recognizes that at the very least, there's a productivity conversation to be had here. How do we make productive use of these things? It is not very hard to go out and build a water system. It is not very hard at all. I realize that we have licensed engineers who do this and that that seems, you know, scary. I... (laughs) The SNL skit lately with the uh, the people on the plane and they say, we need a doctor. And then the guy stands up and says, I'm a lawyer. That's the second most important job. And then they have this argument about what the second most important job is. Um, engineer is thrown out there as, as one option. I had to laugh at that. I'm an engineer. It, it is not hard to build a frontage road and get a Walmart and a McDonald's and a gas station. It is not hard to run sewer and water out to a cul-de-sac and get a collection of homes. It is not hard to do these things. These things are very, very simple. They're very, very easy. I'm going to even say a bunch of idiots could do this. This takes no real brain power. And if you are patting yourself on the back because your city has been able to deliver these things, oh, well, like, you know, congratulations. You've done the base, you know, mechanistic thing to like keep pushing your cart that's rolling downhill, downhill. Build enough tax base to maintain it. 
When I say productivity, that's what I mean. Build enough stuff to actually sustain that investment that you're making. That is a huge trick. That is really, really hard to do. Now, it wasn't hard for our ancestors to do, right? They did it in a certain way. Um, they had a method of doing it. And I'm not going to suggest that that method was kind to everybody or that method took care of all the problems or that method was without downsides. It certainly had all of that. It had nuance, right? It harmonized many competing interests, but that means it didn't solve any of them perfectly. When we look at where we're at today, we have to recognize that it's easy to build stuff. It's hard to maintain it. Some people think of this as like, well, you were distracted, right? Like, oh, we, we, don't, we don't maintain the park because we're distracted. No, we don't maintain the park because we don't have the money to do it. And so what we often do is we subsidize care and money. Well, I'll go back to the lawnmower. Instead of having someone out there every day plucking weeds, planting flowers, caring for things, we... Uh, you know, and having that in every park. So having, you know, 12 of those people or 20 of those people today, uh, we'll go down to two people and just buy big lawnmowers. It, in a sense, solves the financial problem by having a, a lesser product, a lesser output, a less productive kind of place. We can do those things and we can do them to a certain extent. But when the whole pattern is unproductive and requires like continual trade-off, continual slow decline, continual giving up on quality in order to just hang on, what you wind up with is the situation we have right now. That's why look around. Look around at what's happening. Get sensitive to it. Once you are sensitive to it, you will start to see it everywhere. You'll start to see it everywhere. And you'll recognize that the way we have to deal with this is not with another top-down program. It's not with another mechanistic treatment of the city. It's not with uh, getting on our high horse about Flint and saying, you know, everybody deserves a, a insolvent, uh, unproductive water system, Chuck. We all have one. Um, you'll see that what needs to happen is that we need to have a conversation block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community about how we take control of our places. How do we make them productive again? How do we make them great places to live? How do we make them places that build wealth for people, for neighborhoods, for communities? How do we create the capacity in our places to actually take care of and sustain themselves? This is the question, the series of questions that we have been working to answer at Strong Towns since the beginning, since 2008, since I started writing a blog, you know, 15 years ago, really, it was 15 years ago this month, 2008, that I started writing what would become the Strong Towns blog, trying to answer this question, why are cities broke and what do we do about it? We have an answer today. Unlike 15 years ago, where I was speaking in the dark, you know, this voice in the wilderness, trying to figure this out. I don't understand why our city's going broke. Here's some ideas. Here's some insights I have. Help me figure this out. We don't have every answer. And I'm not going to pretend that we have everything figured out, but we have a strategy now, right? We have an approach now. We certainly have a deeper understanding of the problem. Strong Towns has evolved. Uh, the Strong Towns movement has grown 
this whole operation has changed. And we are starting to see now huge, huge impacts on the ground. Lots and lots of people now see strodes. Lots of people see the need for incremental improvements. Lots of people recognize stagnation for what it is. Lots of people have stepped outside of the dominant political narratives and are ready to talk about their place in real human terms. A lot of people have given up on the simplistic, mechanistic description of cities and have embraced complexity as a way of understanding why things aren't working and how we get them back to working again. This is our member week this week. I'm going to come back in a couple of days and, and talk a little bit more about what we're doing and what we need to do to keep this thing moving forward, to, to really jumpstart this thing. But I, I'm going to leave you with this. I have watched now in 50 states people who I'm just blown away people who show up, be part of our events, be part of our local conversations program, become members of Strong Towns. I've watched it happen in city after city after city where they show up and they're not technical professionals. They're not running for office. Some of those people show up and they're wonderful, but the vast majority of people who show up are not people who in any way, shape, or form in the current system have any power or leverage. Yet, they're ready to roll up their sleeves. They're ready to do things in their own block, in their own neighborhood, with their neighbors to make things better. And then they go out and do them. They go out and do some of the most amazing, beautiful things I've ever seen. I'm deeply grateful. I'm deeply grateful because uh, this movement that we started was designed to inspire people to do good. It was designed to help people understand the problem. So we stopped attacking each other and started working together with each other. It, it, it was meant to be uncomfortable, yes, and that it made us more sensitive to the things around us that weren't working, but it made us more sensitive in a way that allowed us to recognize that we, we don't have to wait for the president to be elected from the party we want to actually do something good. We don't have to get out to vote for the senator uh, who's going to represent us correctly and get 50 plus one of our team in order to have good things happen. In fact, if, if we wait for those things, we are going to waste our lives and see, have nothing to show for it. We can get out there tomorrow. We can get out there this afternoon. We can get out there right now. And we can actually do things that matter, do things that make a difference, do things that will lead to other things, will lead to other things, will inspire others, will bring others along, will move things along, will create a bottom-up groundswell of change that cannot and will not be ignored. That's where we are today. I wrote a book back in 2019, and the subtitle of it was A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. And I remember someone said to me, that's a, that's a little grandiose, isn't it, Chuck? A bottom-up revolution? I mean, who are you? You know, you, you uh, some, some radical revolutionary? And the answer is yes. Yes, I am. Strong Towns is. You are. We all have a role to play here. We all have things we can do. And as I get to the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask you to go sign up to become a member. Go to strongtowns.org. This is a, a, a member-driven movement. We need you to actually become part of it. 
But I'm going to end this conversation by saying the thing that came out of my mouth over a decade ago when I did the, the very early podcast. You know, as you sit behind a microphone and you talk, you try to enunciate things, try to share ideas. And, and there was this idea I was pulling on and I couldn't get to it. I couldn't speak it. I, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was circling around it, circling around it. Then I got to it as this, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. That's the way we end these podcasts. That's the way we end so many of the things we do. Because at the end of the day, the thing that you have control over is what you do. The thing you have control over is what your next step is. And if even a tiny fraction of the people listening to this, even a tiny fraction of the millions of people who plug into Strong Towns every year, act on that. It is a bottom-up revolution. Go do what you can to build a strong town. I'll be back later this week. Thanks, everybody. Go be a member, strongtowns.org slash membership. We are a scrappy bottom-up revolution. It's funny because, you know, we are approaching 5,000 members and our goal, this member drive is to get to 5,000. I remember when our goal was to get to 500. 5,000 blows my mind. I am so excited because crazy good things are happening. You are a big part of it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And you know what? Keep doing what you can <laughs> to build a strong town. See you later. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.